Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, And she, who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Our next reading is Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Why don't we start by praying together? Father, the uh, the image that came to mind as the word was read for me was uh, of a rope that were like these individual strands that together are breakable and fragile but together here at our little city service meeting together in the afternoon we are like a a strong rope tied together and it's something reliable and trustworthy knowing that you're here with us and so father i pray over us today um, that we would uh, together fight pride or that we wouldn't treat it lightly we wouldn't treat it as something um, that's just a personality quirk or something that uh, it's not a big deal that you don't care about, but Father, together we could be open and honest and love one another and challenge one another to become more like you, to lay our vocations at your feet, or that we could be like this strong rope here in the midst of a busy city, in the midst of difficult lives, that we would love one another well and care for one another well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, key to this first story that I want to tell is that I'm actually very, very terrible with foreign languages. And so I studied a little Greek, Hebrew, and German, but quite literally remember next to nothing about them. And so with that in mind, it was about eight years ago that I was serving as an assistant pastor in Chicago. And that church was struggling with money. And one Sunday morning from the front, the financial treasurer said something that really upset me. It doesn't matter exactly what it was, but the sentiment was that if giving at the church didn't pick up, and then the church was going to have to fire me. So, yeah. uh, so kind of a catch-22, because do I give more then? I don't know. You know uh, I had never heard this before, and looking back now, I don't really think that he meant it. He was likely trying his best to convince people to give more, but I really read into it the worst motivations. 
And the finance team, as luck would have it, was actually having a meeting after church, and I came into that room with a whole speech ready to go. <laughs> now, I didn't scream or yell, but really what I did was just as embarrassing. I told them how the job I was doing at the church was beneath me, and that, and this is something I actually said, in the light of all my theological education, I was in fact incredibly humble for being at such a small church and serving <laughs> in such an important role. And something to file away, one of the best ways to know you actually are humble is when you find yourself proclaiming it to a room of very, very confused volunteers. <laughs> Worst of all, I remember telling everyone how lucky they were, and again, this is a real thing that I said in real life, but I said how lucky they were to have me as a pastor because I was fluent in Greek and German and Hebrew, <laughs> which I most certainly was not fluent in any of those. And then confident, really confident, I made a profound impression. I just got up and self-righteously walked out of the room. Well, not good, huh? Not good at all. But there you can see just how much pride was wrapped up with my job or with my vocation. And I want to read in a moment again Psalm 131. And as I read, let it speak to both your head and to your soul, and you can consider it in contrast to my foolish behavior, and maybe it will even bring to mind some of your own. And I will read in a second what King David had to say about how he approached his calling or vocation from God to be king over all of Israel. But first, we should note that a vocation is a role God has called us to take up that's for the good of others. It provides significance to our lives, and it also allows us to take part in working with God and accomplishing his good purposes on this earth. And we'll talk more about this later, but it can be a job we're paid for. But of course, some of us cannot have a job right now, or we're busy with parenthood or other very important pursuits, or we would like a job and tragically can't find one right now, and so I want to say that a vocation can also be much more than a job that we're paid for. And our principal vocation, of course, is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But vocations also include things like motherhood and fatherhood, a husband, a student, a volunteer. It's being a friend, a grandparent, a neighbor, an evangelist to those around us, a brother or sister, and also I would say a, a member of city service here. So with that in mind about vocations, now we can hear what David has to say about his own. My heart is not proud, Lord, and my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Well, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Well, these verses are really a loving and tender invitation from God if you feel that your vocational work has, like me, made you proud or has made you arrogant. Or perhaps you feel weary if you feel like no amount of success is enough or as fulfilling as you would have liked, but yet you keep trying for more and for more. Or if you've come to treat your vocation as a place where you go in life to find some sort of ultimate meaning or ultimate significance. So what we have today is an invitation to sit quietly and peacefully with God, even in the midst of the very real hardships and difficulties associated with the vocations that God has called us to. And for some, it might even be an invitation to leave a role and to take up another. Though like with parenthood, of course, there are some very, very permanent vocations to which God calls us to. And I think we should also keep in mind that there's a hierarchy of vocations. This list isn't in perfect order, but we know first comes, of course, being a disciple of Jesus. And then after that, we have roles related to families, being a brother or sister or son or daughter. We have marriage and singleness and children. And then after that, we might start thinking about our church family and how we might be serving ebbs in our city congregation here. And then after that, I think we would have things like careers and volunteering. 
So what we'll do this afternoon is first we'll think about what Psalm 131 is saying about the limits or the boundaries God has called us to live within when it comes to the vocations that he has also called us to. And then we'll talk at length about what a vocation is. And then we'll talk what about, a little bit about the childlike attitude God wants for his people as they work out their vocations in everyday life. And then we'll finish with looking at how to become like children or how to approach our vocations in a way that rejects pride and embraces content, contentment and rest and delight in our Heavenly Father. So this afternoon, I want to again invite you to pray quietly in your own hearts. You could ask God to speak not only to your head, but to your souls as well. The psalm is supposed to create a longing in us that can only be fulfilled by following the same path that David followed, the path of childlike dependence and enjoyment of God, where we relate to God and to our vocations in a way, again, that praises him, benefits others, and allows us to find that desperately needed rest. So do pray and converse with God, again, as we explore this psalm together. And one picture that comes to mind when I read Psalm 131 is that of Mary and the story we're told in the Gospel of Luke of her being visited by an angel. And we have read this aloud already, but listen again to a little bit of how Mary responded when she was called to the incredible vocation of being the earthly mother of Jesus, which is a job, of course, she did not get paid to do. <laughs> how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Well, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be... The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Well, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, and may your word to me be fulfilled. Well, so over here again, we have Andrew Moeller. I'm upset because I felt like my supposed gifts and abilities weren't receiving their due praise. Haughty, because I, hum- I felt like I was humbly serving, but again, wanted to be praised for being so humble. And here's th- me taking things into my own hands and trying to make a name for myself. And then in contrast, we have Mary, humbly and peacefully accepting her vocation from God. And then we have the same lesson that God taught David. We have here Psalm 131. And let's look at verse 1 in our psalm, where David sings this in his own soul. Well, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me. And what was likely taking place here was that David was receiving criticism for how he conducted himself as king over all Israel. Critics were saying that he was using his job as a way just to make himself money or as a way to make himself seem great. And of course, David did fail miserably time and time again in his own life. One prominent example is when he took a census of Israel to figure out just how powerful he was and what kind of wars he might fight to satisfy his own puffed-up self-image of himself. And so what I think we should do probably is consider this psalm as an ideal. David is saying in general, when things are going their best, here's exactly how I try to rule as king, and here's how I try to approach my vocation. I try not to make it about myself. I'm not prideful. My eyes are not haughty. I don't look around and compare myself to others and rule in a way that makes me feel superior to them. And on top of that, I don't concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me. I think what he means there is that David wouldn't take on things that God had not called him to take on. David is saying, what I have learned is to accept my limitations and my callings only from God. I don't do things to make myself look impressive or simply to step on top of others. 
Well, David, he's also singing and he's praising and he's uh, praying these truths over himself. He's thanking God for what God has taught him. He's overflowing with joy and praise that his vocation actually doesn't define who he is. And when it comes to our vocations, I wonder if we might be able to say the same, that we have approached them like Psalm 131. That we believe we have been directed to them by God and that day by day we seek only to do the work that God has given us not filled with pride or sinful ambition, and not constantly in comparison to other people. Well, this, of course, does not make it wrong to seek out power or wield influence. David obviously was the king over all Israel. But Psalm 131 is calling us to ask if this influence is truly granted to us by God and if we are truly using it in his service. Another thing that Psalm 131 teaches us is that God cares far more about how we relate to him than our apparent success or advancement in life. And as strange as it might sound, God sometimes actually asks us to give up positions of power because they can become like acid for our souls. And when I was reflecting on this passage this week, I thought I could also speak to those who are hurting or have been hurt, who have had major disappointment in life. And now they look to a vocation for ultimate security or ultimate affirmation. It's a kind of safety blanket to protect us against the very real hardships of life. But the danger here, again, is that our vocations might still be about ourselves, our security, our need for notoriety, and our need for affirmation. Well, like myself, there's another very dangerous form of pride that can be associated with ministry positions or charity work or other supposedly not very glamorous roles. And this is the kind of pride that we're actually warned about by Jesus in the Gospels. He tells the story there of a Pharisee who foolishly prays and thanks God that he's not like those supposedly nasty tax collectors. In a similar way, someone serving at a church might privately compare ourselves to those allegedly less righteous people who only work for money or for promotions. And praise God, we might unwisely say that I'm nothing like them. And so it's possible we see from Psalm 131 to be prideful in both glamorous and non-glamorous roles. Well, these are important matters, and I think they're especially important because the Bible tells us that God hates pride. We're told in the book of Proverbs that he actually detests it. And so for myself, for my own pride, again, I can't excuse it as some sort of personality quirk. And that makes me wonder for all of us here, does the spirit of pride rest in our hearts as it relates to one of our vocations? I think we need to take time and pray to God and consider especially who it is in your life that you so often compare yourself pridefully to. For me, it could be other Christian scholars, but what about for all the rest of us? And what is it about you and them that you so often find yourself comparing? To admit another sin, for me, it's often my own supposed piety. So you can probably uh, figure out a pattern here in my own life. Those other scholars don't pray as much as me. They're not as reliant on the Holy Spirit. And you guessed it, they're not as humble as Andrew Moeller. David, of course, in Psalm 131 is obviously warning us against pride or using our vocations as a way to make ourselves seem great. And as strange as it might sound, it to actually delight in ourselves. But also related to this is that when we treat our vocations or callings this way, we end up hurting others. And ironically, these are often the very people we set out in our vocations to help and care for and tend to. We use these other people as a way, way to fulfill ourselves and our own selfish ambitions. So moving on to my next point, it's worth stopping here, I think, and considering why God has called us to vocational work. And I hope here to also explain more why I keep using this strange word, vocation. So I think we should pause and step away from Psalm 131. And what we'll do for a moment is actually look at Genesis chapter 1. 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tasked by God with having dominion over and subduing the entire earth. Well, this meant that they and their descendants were called to be like princes, helping to rule over the earth. Again, God was the king, human were the deputies, and they were to help bring about God's desires on earth for the benefit of all of humanity, but also for the benefit of the entire creation. And subdue is a strange word, so let me say a little bit more about that as well. I think subduing meant to help spread the beauty and wonder and excellence found in the garden across the entire world. The garden was located in a small, specific location on our planet, and so God tasked Adam and Eve and their descendants with helping to, again to bring about the realities of garden across the entire earth. And that could look like farming the land or pruning or cultivating other plants and flowers, but it also includes a whole lot more than that. Things like the arts and worship and the building of houses and bridges and having children and getting married and developing technology and all those ways we can make enjoy- the earth enjoyable for all creatures, but especially so for human beings. So to subdue the earth then means to take up the work that helps others enjoy the peace and security and prosperity and worship and friendship with God that Adam and Eve were able to enjoy in the garden. So how would I succinctly define a vocation? I would say this, a vocation is a God-appointed role associated with having dominion over and subduing the earth. It's how we play our small parts in helping to bring some of the realities enjoyed by Adam and Eve to our world today. As one example, a waiter helps feed others, which of course is a very true necessity of life. But additionally, they bring joy and rest and fellowship to others as they do that. And so again, being a waiter to me seems like playing a very real part in what God has tasked us with this vocation of subduing the earth. But I also think for some here today, taking taking up a vocation from God means taking up paid work for too long may have been intentionally avoiding doing so. And I think also of the retired. How might God be calling you to spend these years in a way that serves others, benefits your own soul, and also takes part in the subduing of the earth? Or students, how might you embrace your vocation of learning with excitement? Are these just wasted years you have to put up with till you get to so-called real life and so-called freedom? Or how could God be preparing you here and now for a significant role later of subduing the earth? And there's such a big world in front of you and there's so many ways to play a part in God's plan for our world. And some people that came to mind here as inspiration, one person was Emily Kennedy, who's an American who just out of university, she used her skills in technology and entrepreneurship and management to partner with law enforcement to fight back against people who are seeking to harm children online. Or I think of my friend and former city member Camilla, and she uses her leadership skills as an executive to help guide a large organization that feeds and houses and clothes poor families across the world. And I don't think either of them, well, my wife here is Tiffany. Do you want to wave, Tiffany? But Hudson, Hudson is not with us. And I thought for the young people here, you might want to grab coffee with Tiffany or Hudson, who's not with us. And you might want to learn about what would it look like to develop skills to use in the business and in the charity worlds. Both places where Christians are very much needed. And both places, very much I should emphasize, both places where Christians can serve and do their part in subduing the earth. And looking elsewhere, it's very true that for some, a disability or other life circumstance might be keeping us from a job or from volunteering on a consistent basis. But again, to all of us here, a vocation is much more than a job that we get paid for. And it's much more even than a volunteer position with a charity or even work as a student. 
As an example, think of the vocation of an evangelist, someone who intentionally and prayerfully shares the good news of Jesus with their friends and family and neighbors on a consistent basis. Well, speaking to everyone here again, we all at times may feel like the jobs or the roles we have are unsatisfying or that they're in some ways unimportant. But I would encourage you to take some time this week to consider your current roles or vocations or jobs and to find some encouragement by specifically writing out how you think they might be taking part in the task we have from God of subduing this earth. How might this vocation be related to a mandate you have from the creator himself? And I encourage you to remember that one major reason that God has you wherever you are is to care for and love and share Jesus with the people that are around you. And that is an incredibly, incredibly significant thing to be doing, even at what might be considered by some the lowliest of jobs. And any vocation is important because it has been assigned to us by God. It's for the benefit of others and because we can find some satisfaction for it meaning that we can do what we're created by God to do, but also because we can offer it up to God as an act of praise and worship. So we might say this afternoon that a vocation is from God, but it's also for God. It's our way of serving him, honoring him, and delighting in him in every area of our lives. So let's take a step back now from Genesis 1. We'll come to Psalm 131 again. And we can look at our next point of how God is calling us to be childlike. And what David is saying is that when it comes to my vocation, both how I relate to vocation in my own soul, but how I carry out my vocation day to day, well, I found another way of doing things. Not a way like Andrew Moeller, not a way of pride and using others for my own advantage, but I found a different way. I've in fact found a better way. And here it is in verse two. While I've calmed and quieted myself, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. This is, in fact, a really radical psalm. David, through the Holy Spirit, is saying that it's possible in the midst of a job as stressful as running an entire country by yourself, that it's, in fact, possible to feel like a contented child nestled into his mother. And think here of who David was. He came from a humble background. Many would say, well, he was just a shepherd. No one thought he was going to do great things in life. And so think of this temptation going from no notoriety to the most powerful position in an entire country. Think of the people who must have continued to criticize him, saying behind his back, well, he's really just a small-town shepherd. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't know what he's doing. Think of how David must have been tempted to show them up. Or think about those people whispering in his ear, trying to get their own traction, their own positions of power, saying, hey, David, you really should make this about yourself, huh? You, you came from nothing. You're here. You did this. That's amazing. Now use it for us. Use it for yourself. You should really be making a name for yourself here now that you're in a position of power. This makes me, of course, think today of temptations and outside voices that might be tempting us to seek power and prestige and to indulge our pride. I think of the success we might see in friends and family members that so often makes us jealous. Or I think especially of the corrosive influence of social media. There's so many voices out there, and David is actually able to say that for me, not much seems to have changed. That I can block it all out and still relate to God like I was a shepherd back in the field back when I used to pray to him and delight in him, worship him for hours on end, just as a child, trusting him to watch over me, trusting him to watch over my flock, having nothing but me and God and hours together. David's saying, I'm able to block all that out, all that noise, and not much has changed. It's at my soul, I'm just a small shepherd, worshiping God, trusting God, and delighting in God. Well, David is saying, in the midst of his role as king, where it'd be so easy to make it all about myself and fulfilling my desires and plans, I have found contentment, I've found peace, and I've found rest. 
And the only way I can describe it is I feel like a well-fed baby being carried around by his mother. And one picture that came to mind when I read this verse was a rendition of Psalm 23, which is a psalm also written by David, and it comes from my one-year-old son's Bible. I don't know if we have a picture there that we could put up. But listen now to this picture of content, delight, and rest from a time when David was again reflecting on his early days as a shepherd. He says this, God is my shepherd and I am his little lamb. He feeds me, he guides me, he looks after me. I have everything I need. Take a moment now and think about the stress of this past week. Think about times when your vocation seemed overwhelming or tempted you towards pride. And think about what David is calling us, this rest he's offering us that can be found in the Father. Again, he says, inside my heart is very quiet, as quiet as lying still in soft green grass and a meadow by a little stream. Even when I walk through the dark, scary, lonely places, I won't be afraid, because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me. He makes me strong and brave. Wherever I go, I know God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love will go to We'll just take a moment, settle yourself before Jesus and thank him for that kind of compassion and care that he can offer us. But returning now to Psalm 131, David is saying that I'm content with my vocation because I'm content with my creator. I don't need to take on anything that God has not given me. And in the midst of business and all the hardships and pressures of this vocation, I have an incredible rest. I have an incredible peace. David paints a picture of a child who needs nothing but the presence of his loving mother. It's a picture of absolute content delight that he offers us. What might also be a picture of a beautiful summer evening thousands of years ago with a child resting on his mother as the two of them journey from a faraway city into Jerusalem, this journey that might take days upon days, and they just have each other and join each other as they journey again from a faraway city to celebrate a religious festival in Jerusalem. How they must have looked forward to that worship of God, but also how they must have delighted in each other as they made this journey together. Think about that child who worries about nothing, trusting his mother, delighting in his mother. Well, another picture that comes to mind is the words I found recently in a biography. And there the author was remembering a time where he delighted in his mother when he was a young child. Listen again to what he writes. It's a bit of a long paragraph. Well, there, you're falling asleep again, little Nicholas, says mother. No, I won't go to sleep, mother, I reply, though almost inaudibly, for pleasant dreams are filling all my soul. Well, the sound sleep of childhood is weighing my eyelids down, and for a few moments I sink into slumber and oblivion until awakened by someone. I feel in my sleep as though a soft hand were caressing me. I know it by touch, and still, though dreaming, I seize hold of it and press it to my lips. Everyone else has gone to bed, and only one candle remains burning in the drawing room. Mother has said that she herself will wake me. She sits down on the arm of the chair in which I am asleep, and with her soft hand stroking my hair, and I hear her beloved, well-known voice say in my ear, Get up, my darling. No envious gaze sees her now. She's not afraid to shed upon me the whole of her tenderness and love. I do not wake up, yet I kiss, and I kiss her hand. Well, get up, my angel. She passes her other arm around my neck, and her fingers tickle me as they move across it. Well, the room is quiet and half darkness, but the tickling has touched my nerves, and I begin to awake. A mother is sitting near me, and that I can tell and touching me. I can hear her voice and feel her presence. This at last rouses me to spring up, to throw my arms around her neck, to hide my head in her bosom, and to say with a sigh, Ah, dear darling mother, how much I love you. She smiles her enchanting smile, takes my head between her two hands, kisses me on the forehead, 
and lifts me onto her lap. I wonder how many of us wish we could say that during a time at work that feels stressful, a time of parenting that feels overwhelming, some vocation that just seems too much of us, that we could just be picked up, put on the lap of a mother who delights in us, delight in her, be cared and loved for. We might ask, how can this kind of rest and contentment be possible? Well, for the Christian, it starts with how we relate to our vocation, how we relate to Jesus before we even start thinking about how it is we might relate to our vocations. He, again, is the ultimate source of contentment as our creator. And if you're like me, you've probably heard this 10,000 times as you've come to church. But I wonder if we really believe that. I wonder if our lives reflect that. And I wonder if our vocations reflect that truth. Would you give up a prestigious role or position that you have if Jesus was calling you to it? Well, rest is also possible because Jesus is perfectly good and wise and loving and powerful. We find rest knowing that he alone can be trusted, trusted to lead and guide and protect us into whatever vocation and whatever troubles we might find in that vocation. Well, coming now to my last point, then how do we move from making our vocations about ourselves into rest and into contentment and into delight? Or maybe even not that problem. Perhaps we view a certain vocation we have as mostly focused on others and what we can be doing for them. But nevertheless, how do we move from feeling that it all comes down to us, it all relies on us, if we're not there, if we're not working as hard as we can, then it's all just going to come crashing down? Well, the answer is given to us by David, and that is we need to practice together a childlike faith. And I would say like this, we need to simply and without overthinking things, first be served by our Savior Jesus, and then we can in fact be ready to serve other people. What I have in mind is the picture of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Again, the disciples would have been wearing sandals and walking through the muck and mire and sand and manure all day, but here's Jesus stooping down and lovingly serving his followers, his disciples, the one he was as teacher and they were supposed to be serving him. And remember, it was Jesus who had the most significant vocation in all of human history. It was Jesus who was savior of the entire world. Jesus, who with infinite power set aside any ideas of making a name for himself or taking on any earthly power. Born in a far-flung part of the world, and he had no wealth. Jesus, who said to the Father on the eve of his death, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, who died what was intended by the Romans to be a shameful death, naked upon a cross. And he did this, all of this to serve us, to humbly fulfill his vocation as Savior of the entire world. So I think we need to come to Jesus and ask him to serve us by teaching us first to delight in him. We need to practice this delight, which can look something like offering our vocations up to God as an act of worship to him, but it also looks like something like reading a portion of the Gospels each day, and there we might take time to meditate on the perfect character of Jesus that we find there. Or it might look something like taking long walks throughout the city, making time in your day or your week to be alone with Jesus, praising him, telling him your worries and your fears, asking him to come down and care about you like a loving parent, someone who not just cares about your success, but your emotions and your inner life, someone who wants to scoop you up and love you and take care of you. But we also need to come to Jesus simply like a child and ask him to wash away our pride in any ways that we have made our vocations about ourselves. And we need to be served by Jesus through our friends, through the body of Christ, what we talked about earlier, the strong rope, asking them in what ways they have seen us puffed up and prideful and haughty when it comes to our vocations. 
And I would encourage you in the next week or two to take a risk, meet with a friend and ask them that very question. Where do you see this pride in my life as it relates to my vocations? Where do you see me making things about myself? Where do you see me puffed up and haughty? You already know it. I'm sure you already see it in my life. I can't hide it. So we might as well be open and honest with each other. We may also need to ask Jesus to serve us by revealing if a certain role we have taken on is truly from him. Could it be from Jesus as he serves us that we actually need to let go of that role entirely? And if you haven't done so before and you're struggling in your vocation with pride or immense weariness or discontent or whatever it might be, it might be good again to go to a group of friends and say, hey, you know me well. Is this a vocation I'm really called to? Is this something that lines up with how God has made me, but also a specific calling you believe he's given me over his life? I know you and I love you and I trust you. What do you have to say to me? Or is this just something I've built up for myself? Is this something that I actually need to let go? And of course, for others here, those prayers very much need to be avoided. And that's because like Jonah the prophet, we know we have been called to something specific, even at the moment, we just don't really like it. And we wish we could run away from it. We wish we could have Jesus wash it away. We wish it was no longer our responsibility. But again, for some others, we might need to pray quietly in our own hearts, asking that God might take away choice and instead direct you clearly and plainly, saying, is this something I need to let go of? Do I need to lay this at your feet, Jesus? Even if it's something I've always loved and cared about, even if I found rest, supposed rest in it, but more likely, even if that's where I've been placing ultimate meaning, security, and affirmation. But we need to be open-handed like children, both to God and to God's family, and saying, please serve me. What do I need to do? Please direct me. But a danger here, again, is we might go into panic mode and think again, well, it's all about myself. I have to figure this out. Is this vocation really from God? And we might, again, tie ourselves up to, to knots, thinking, I better figure this out quickly. I might be sinning against God. I might whip myself into some sense of anxiety. But the picture we had in Psalm 23 is of a loving God, a gentle Jesus who wants to scoop us up and direct us and give us only what we need to know for today. So we don't need to go into panic mode. We don't need to worry. We could just sit and rest and contently delight in our Father. One image that comes to mind even, that's not in my notes here, but it's come to mind as I preach, is I think of Jesus going across the, the lake during the storm, and a huge storm comes, and it's rocking and frolicking, and they think the boat's going to capsize, and the disciples are nervous, but Jesus is resting in the boat. And what is that invitation to us to say, even in the midst of this storm, I'm going to get you to the other side, and you can worry or you can rest with me here in this boat. Either way, we're getting to the other side, but I invite you now, I care about what you're experiencing. Come sit, rest, I have this, I'll take care of you. So it could again be that you're called to leave a certain vocation and that perhaps you're called to something else. But it could be also you're called to stay. In that case, your calling may very well be consistently stressful, or there could be a tremendous pull towards pride and self-importance and so you might feel this afternoon like contentment and rest are actually very, very far from you. Well, what then we have to ask? Well, again, we need to come like children and pray and ask God for direction and clarity to show us, I think, if there are actually aspects of our vocations that we're called to give up. But what if you do that? What if you've done all this and you're still plagued by anxiety and by weariness? And that could be true for some of us. God has called some into very high-pressure vocations. What comes to mind here, I think of parenthood or other family obligations that some of, my, some of us might have been called to take on. Well, here I should pause and note that what we have to say to people in these kind of God-appointed, high-pressure vocations today is not a rebuke, but a very, very sincere thank you. Thank you for pouring out your lives for others, and thank you for taking up your vocation. 
Remember that in all struggles with stress or a fight against sin, and you might even just for a short season of life be called on to take something that's incredibly trying and incredibly stressful. And I think here, former U.S. President Abraham Lincoln, I don't know if we have this first photo of him up, but he led America during its Civil War and helped bring an end to slavery. And he was called, I very much believe by God, to this vocation to end slavery in the United States, but as well beyond the bounds of normal stress and intensity that human beings are designed to withstand. So here we have, at the start of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln. If we could show the next photo, here's him five years later. Think about the stress that he endured. And for people like President Lincoln, for others here in these high-stress vocations, what else can we say to you but a very, very sincere thank you? During times like these, like children, it's vitally important to still ask God for help. We're called to pray and ask God and others for support and encouragement. And like a child, we need to be open and honest and ask for assistance and care from God and from our friends. We'll skip ahead because I see we're short on time. And so what I want to do here is actually end, and as we're thinking about our vocations, I want us to ponder what greatness might actually look like within the kingdom of God. We have David in a great position as king over all of Israel, but Jesus is our king, ruling over the kingdom of God. And I have in mind here people who are really and genuinely seeking to live their lives for Jesus want to do something great. But I do wonder if greatness in the kingdom of God might look something far different than we've come to expect. And several years ago, a good friend gave a eulogy at his daughter's funeral. And this is what he had to say about her, who was a young woman who spent many of her last years immobile and in tremendous pain. He said, instead of self-promotion or self-construction, there was in my daughter that letting go of the false self, that setting out of her own way, which then makes space. And in the space carved out by weakness and loss, when the involuntary cross becomes voluntary, her true and deeper self grew, Christ living in her, she was more herself, more present, more free, precisely because of the letting go. And in those years and in that space, she learned the humility of living moment by moment, spotting the funny, noticing anything and everything to be enjoyed, and truly patient in accepting her suffering. She developed the honesty that comes from seeing the pointlessness of pretense and spoke with a directness which was both settling and unsettling, both seen through you and gentle at the same time. Her reach came from much of life, being in confined spaces, hospital rooms, her own home, for months and months now her bed, and always her body. Her intense and acute awareness of her body, with all of its limits and pain, gave her access to depths which, with her utter immersion of scripture, generated a sort of holy wisdom. Her silence was cultivated against the constant background noise of the BiPAP and the concentrator. Her connection and compassion for others grew out of hours of solitude and prayer. She was easy with others and had such interest in others because she knew how to be alone. Her stillness was won by acceptance of loss and her presence in herself and for others was possessed by letting go. Well, it's an amazing and heartbreaking account of the taking up of one's vocation to be a daughter, a sister, a wife, a sister in Christ. It's actually a picture of greatness in the kingdom of God living under the rule of our King Jesus of resting and finding contentment in God in some of the worst difficulties and pains and hardships that we could encounter in this life. Well, David then concludes in verse 3 with encouragement to the people of God, and he wants them to experience the rest and enjoyment and contentment that he's found, that he's messed up so many times, and now he's saying, I found a better way, and I want all my people to have it. He wants them to delight and find joy in God as they go about their vocations. And so he sings this over his people, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. 
So we all could take time this week and sit with those words together. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, in your strength we can do all things and please our sovereign God. Tame our natures, Lord. Mold us into your need. Fashion us to your taste and conform us to your will. Enable us and all who hear your call to give ourselves generously to your service. Send us as workers into the church and into the world.